right. Um, I have a question for you. Have you ever watched babies or toddlers when they don't know that you're watching them and they're fighting sleep and with everything they've got? About 40 years ago, I was living in a little town in Kentucky. And one day I happened to be at the only grocery store in town. And I was standing in the checkout line and I was behind this young mother and her baby. I don't, I didn't know how old the child was, but she was old enough to be sitting up in the shopping cart. And, um, I watched her as her eyes grew heavy, heavier and heavier. I mean, this little one was just, and then her head would jerk up and, and she was fighting it with all she had, let me tell you. She did this over and over again, and it was adorable. But I remember thinking, oh, little one, you'll feel so much better if you just give in and go to sleep. But in that moment, I realized something interesting about human nature. We will hold on to what we know and resist surrendering to something else until we have no choice but to give in. It's the same with life. We resist death, which is natural, because this is the life we know. We know that we're going to have a better life in heaven, but that's by faith. And it takes faith every every step of the way getting there. Amen? Um, now, the name of this message is resistance is futile. I clearly didn't coin the phrase resistance is futile, but sometimes it just fits a situation. Amen. When preparing for this morning, I momentarily geeked out and actually looked up the origin of the phrase online. And this is what I found. Now, I am not a Star Trek fan. I admit that to you because it feels a little weird what I'm about to say. But about that phrase It became popular when in the series Star Trek The Next Generation, the crew encountered a spacecraft housing a cyborg civilization that would announce to all it met, resistance is futile, futile, before trying to absorb them into itself. I promise you that I am not attempting to absorb any of you into myself this morning. But the frame, the phrase, the phrase seemed suitable for today's message. Let's pray. Father, we ask you, in the name of your holy son, Jesus, this morning, to show us the truths from your word that you want us to see and know. Fill my mouth with the right words that will clearly articulate your thoughts and intentions for us. Give us willing hearts and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today, and an abundance of grace to make the adjustments necessary to line up with your will, your plan, and your desire for us. We believe that we receive the things we ask of you, and we thank you for it all. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the uh, come on in. The, uh, The retired teacher in me always thinks it's a good place to begin by defining the terms that we're going to use. So let's do that. Resistance means the refusal to accept or comply with something, the attempt to prevent something by action or argument. Futile means incapable of producing any result. Futile is ineffective, useless, and not successful. Okay, so imagine that I'm, or you, that 
we're backed into a corner and resistance is futile when we're facing a person or situation. So what is our only option? Anyone? Surrender. Exactly. Well, yes, the Lord, of course. But by grace, we got to surrender because we can't escape, right? So surrender means to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit to their authority. Okay. We're going to first look at the Apostle Paul, and we're going to go to Philippians chapter 3. And quite honestly, I didn't write all the versions down, but I told Shannon which ones they were. So this one's the New King James Version. Excuse me. Um, let's see here. Uh, we're beginning in verse two. Paul is giving the final instructions to the believers in Philippi before he's going to be on his way going to, uh, on his next missionary journey. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. There was teaching going around that these new converts, especially the Gentile converts, needed to submit to circumcision. And Paul's saying, that's a work of the flesh. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's what he meant by that. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In these admonitions to the church of Philippi, excuse me, Paul laid out his pedigree, so to speak, making the point that any supposed righteousness apart from Jesus is worthless. Because let's face it, if any Jew could attain a righteousness before God by keeping the law and living the way the Jews were supposed to live, it would be Paul. But uh, this was not always Paul's story, the reliance upon Jesus. From his infancy, Paul's destiny was to follow the law to the letter. It was the focus of his life, and it became his life's work. He relentlessly sought out and crushed anything and anyone that threatened Judaism. Historians tell us that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus and that Paul had likely heard Jesus' teachings, having visited the same regions Jesus did. But we have no record of Paul attempting to silence the man, Jesus. What seems to have been the motive behind Paul's deadly pursuit of early believers was the fact that so many Jews were embracing the message of salvation in Jesus. As the message spread and as the number of believers rapidly grew, they became a threat to the Jewish way of life. No longer did people identify as Jews, strictly observing and obeying the laws as their means of righteousness. But in increasing numbers, people identified themselves as followers of Jesus with less reliance on the law and growing devotion to the love, forgiveness, mercy, and grace they found in the Messiah. 
At this time, Saul of Tarsus, as he was known prior to his conversion, began his relentless pursuit of the church. In Acts 26, verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 11, and this time it's in the New Living Translation, Paul describes his persecution of the early church. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I think Paul had an issue with believers. What do you think? Before he became one. <coughs> Paul was present at the stoning of Stephen. In Acts seven fifty-five to 58 we read, But he, now we're talking about Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And all the Jews did not say, Woohoo! Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Paul was not merely a spectator or a passerby. He heartily approved the stoning of Stephen. But something happened to Paul that changed the course of his life forever. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and this time in the Amplified Classic, meanwhile, Paul, Saul, excuse me, meanwhile, Saul, still drawing his breath hard from threatening and murderous desire against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and requested of him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, authorizing him so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, the Christians, he might bring them bound with chains to Jerusalem. Now as he traveled on, he came near to Damascus. And suddenly, I love those suddenlies, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, And he fell to the ground. Then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, harassing, troubling, and molesting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is dangerous, and it will turn out badly for you to keep kicking against the goad, to offer vain and perilous resistance. First and foremost, He wasn't just persecuting Christians. He was persecuting Jesus. And Jesus took it personally when his people were being persecuted. Now that term, kicking against the goad, it's not one we use very often anymore, unless we're reading this scripture. Um, But if we just look at it in context of what, what Jesus was meaning to Paul, it means showing opposition to authority, 
to rebel, to stand up against those in charge, but perhaps to no avail. But in other translations, the term is kick against the pricks. They mean the same thing, a goad, a prick. They're sharpened sticks that a cattle handler may use to control cattle and their movement. Another analogy that I thought was interesting, having never been um, a convicted felon, but if you if we think of a, a first-time convicted felon going to prison, it's going to go a lot better for him if he doesn't kick against the goad. In other words, if he listens to the prison guards and obeys the rules, it's going to be a lot better for him his time in prison than if he's always going to fight against the authority there. Can you see that? Okay. (laughs) Paul had been charging ahead in his persecution of the church, and the Lord chose to stop him in his tracks. Now, it would be natural to, to think that Jesus wanted to stop him in order to protect the new Christians, and no doubt that was one reason for Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. But equally as important to Jesus was saving Paul's soul. In his fervor, Paul likely didn't realize he was the, on the road to personal destruction as the responsibility for so many devastated lives would be laid on him. First and foremost, Jesus loved Paul, even in his sin, just as Jesus loved us in our sin when while we were yet sinners scripture says paul had resisted god by resisting the church and by resisting jesus himself until by an act of god paul realized that resistance was futile and he surrendered to the lordship of jesus amen let's look at another story this is my favorite old testament story Um, And I believe you're probably familiar with the story of Esther, who became um, queen. And um, she was the queen of the wife, queen as wife of King Ahasuerus. If you've never taken the time to read this book, I highly recommend it because it's just, it's just got golden nuggets all the way through. It's such a good story Um, and a good account of of history. So, for, But for the sake of time, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest condensed version here. All right, so King Ahasuerus was married to Queen Vashti, who disobeyed the king's order issued when he had had a bit too much to drink, and as a result, she was ousted as queen. Okay? Later, he regretted ditching Vashti, but he couldn't repeal his edict, so his advisor suggested he bring in a batch of virgins that the king might choose one of them to be the new queen. Clearly, you're going to enjoy this more if you read it. Okay, there was a Jew living in the city by the name of Mordecai, and he had a ward um, because his cousin Esther, because Esther's parents had died, and her father was Mordecai's uncle. They were cousins. Esther was very beautiful, and he decided, Mordecai decided, he was going to send her to be one of the virgins to go to the palace. Time passed. You'll get the details if you read the book. And the king loved Esther more than all the others, so he made her queen. Now, there was another man named Haman who was given a powerful position in the palace, and he hated Mordecai because as a Jew, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman like everyone else. 
So Haman sought to have Mordecai and, in fact, all the Jews killed. Uh, What evil Haman didn't know was that Mordecai had once warned the king through Esther of a plot that he overheard by two of the servants of the king, and they were going to kill him. So, and and the king, who normally would reward that kind of behavior or that kind of a kindness shown to him, had never rewarded him. So one night he couldn't sleep. He stayed up late. He's looking through the book of all the things that have happened. And he asked his servant, what did we do for Haman who warned me that I was going to be killed? And he said, they said nothing. Right. Mordecai. I knew I would get confused on this. Okay. So what have I done for Mordecai? Nothing. Okay. So um, let me go back to this and then I'll. Okay. Just as Haman the right one, was coming in to the king to propose the annihilation of the Jews. The king, who had remembered Mordecai's act of kindness, asked Haman, how should the king reward someone the king favors? Haman, thinking, this is me. The king loves me. Um, Thinking it was him, laid out an elaborate plan of honor and, like, parade him around in your finest um uh, robe on a, on you, one of your horses through the street saying, this is what's done for the man the king honors. And the king said, great, you're going to do that for Mordecai. Okay, so Haman was not a happy camper. And he had to do this. Um, but then meantime, Mordecai discovered Haman's plan to wipe out the Jews, and he sent word to Esther that she was the only one in position to speak to the king in order to rescue her people. Mordecai said to her in Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. The two things I see in this, this, uh, these two verses that just grip me are, number one, God's will is going to be accomplished. He wants to use us to accomplish his will in the earth. Can you say amen to that? But if we won't do it, if we don't have the courage, or if we're just stubborn and we don't want to do it, he will find somebody else to do it. But that somebody else who does do it is going to reap the reward that was intended for you. The other thing was, Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. There's a reason we are here now. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It was dangerous for Esther to approach the king or anyone to approach the king without being summoned. But Esther said, she relayed to her uncle, if I die, I die. I won't tell you what else happens in the story because there's lots more. You have to read this book. Um, But I will say, Haman gets what's coming to him, and because of the actions of Esther, the plot was spoiled. Esther had a choice to make. 
She could have told Mordecai that what he was asking her to do was way too great a risk. But then she would have had the blood of the Jews on her hands. Esther had to realize that resistance was futile. She forged ahead courageously, and the Lord saved her people. And this might seem a little random or randomly unrelated, but bear with me. When Esther entered the palace, she had no idea that her presence there would change history. But God knew. He had to get her inside the palace to be in a position to do what he had already called her to do, even though she didn't know it at the time. Dave preached a couple weeks ago, and one of the things that he said that has really stuck with me is he, he used an analogy to describe the way God views all of human history all at the same time. And that includes my life and your life. That it's similar to a drone, because he talked about us being back up north in our hometown and being at an annual parade. And he said, we could only see the bits as they passed by us. But a drone, if it goes high enough, can see the parade from the beginning to the end, all while it's going on. And that's how God, he views all of history from beginning to end, so he knows what's needed and what needs to be in place, and yet we still have a choice about what to do. When Paul was being trained up in the law, God already knew that the man Saul would do his best to destroy the early church. At the same time, God knew that Paul would turn to faith in Jesus, plant churches, disciple believers, and write two-thirds of the New Testament. He had to get him in position to fulfill his destiny in God. Excuse me. One more story, and this one hits a little closer to home. When Dave and I married over 34 years ago, we had already... Um, He had already been living in Florida for four years. He did not want to move back to frigid, frigid western New York winters, and I understand that. So if we were going to build a life together, it was going to be down here. Dave asked me to fly down for a long weekend a few months before we were to be married so I could see the house that he and the kids were living in and, and the area and decide if I could live here. I always thought this was kind of an unfair test because Who isn't going to appreciate the warmth of Florida after a cold, snowy winter up north? But I didn't think of that at the time. Now, the year before this, my life had been a dumpster fire. I won't go into all the details. But I had become a single parent of three very young children. And I lived within easy access of my parents who helped me whenever I needed them. After our backyard wedding... In September of 1989, in our hometown, we were off to Florida, where I knew only my new husband and my new three stepdaughters. Thankfully, I made some friends at the church we attended, but even still at times, the isolation was overwhelming and my homesickness was suffocating. At the same time, Dave and I were both adjusting to our new life together as husband and wife but also as step-parents to three new children. My babies were three and a half, two years, and eight and a half months old the day we got married. Dave's girls were almost 14, 12, and 7. Suffice it to say, 
The name of the game was survival for quite a long time. I struggled with living here. I desperately missed my hometown, and especially the changing seasons. Yes, even winter, but mostly fall. There were days here when it was hot and humid outside while I sat watching my favorite football team play where the weather was crisp and cool. I shed a few tears sitting there by myself watching football games. The first Christmas, my older brother had an evergreen wreath shipped to us. And when I opened the box, I'll never forget, the aroma of the pine boughs was like a momentary trip back in time. I spent years, probably a decade or more, resisting my new home community. I didn't like it. And I didn't want to like it. I hated the weather, except for the month or so in the winter when it didn't feel like a hot oven outside. I hated the palm trees, especially when people put Christmas lights on them. I hated the bugs that were the size of small cars. Oh, my goodness. Every time I walked out of the house and there was a lizard or a gecko going by, it freaked me out. When I would hear an airplane in the sky, I would watch it until I couldn't see it anymore and think how nice it would be to be flying away from here. I believe now that part of my attitude about where um, where I was had to do with the pent-up resistance of everything that had happened in my life in that year before moving here, and that this move was just one more thing I had been forced into. Now, I don't mean forced by Dave, and I, we talked about this yesterday. I never once blamed him for where I found myself. I sincerely never said this is your fault or even thought this is your fault because I knew that I had made the choice to come here even though it was without knowing what it was like to live here, which is very different from visiting. I made the choice, and I made it because I believed And Dave did as well, that God was bringing us together to rebuild two families into one. But what I didn't realize until much later was that I was being a petulant child, digging my heels in, crossing my arms, and refusing to see anything good about this place that was my new home. Acts 17, verses 24 to 28 in the uh, New International Version, Version says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human needs as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and Hear this part. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God wanted me to be here to build a life with my husband. And this was planned before I was ever born, because he already knew when in history I would be born and the specific boundaries of my lands. And he did this so that I would seek him. 
and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Amen. It has taken me years to appreciate my life here. I resisted until I finally surrendered. But I should have surrendered years ago. I knew God wanted me to marry my husband. I knew I was supposed to be here. But I had had to lose my will in so many ways until it felt like I didn't have a will left to lose. I was So I was focused on what I didn't want. I was so focused on what I didn't want that I didn't bother to lean on God or even ask him to comfort me in this new place. I didn't want him to show me that what was good about my life here. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about the great men and women of faith. And in verses 13 through 16, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Had our patriarchs not focused on what was before them by faith and had only looked back to what they had before, they would have had opportunity to return, but they would have missed out on all the blessings God had for them. It's the same with us. I had to be willing to lay aside the yearning for my former home in order to embrace my new home. The place where God had brought me. If this is where God has called me to be, then this is where I will find his blessings for me. If this is where God called me to be, this is where I will find his protection for me. And everything else he has for me, healing, prosperity, peace, to be where he wants me to be is where I will find all of those things. I hadn't realized that while I was professing faith in God and allegiance to him, I wasn't trusting him to know what was best for me. And we're going to look at Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. In the message. Do you have the message? Awesome. This is God speaking, and I love this. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. Plans to take care of you, not abandon you. Plans to give you the future you hope for. When you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I will listen. When you come looking for me, you'll find me. Yes, when you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. All the while, I'm saying to God, why did you bring me here? Are you sure you know what you're doing? And he, was, he had already said it. I know what I'm doing. I have it all planned out. I'm going to take care of you. God will never disappoint us. He will never abandon us. 
He will continue to increase us more and more, us and our children. He can be trusted all the time, in every situation, under all circumstances, forever. Let me say that again. He can be trusted all the time, in every situation, under all circumstances, forever. One of the things I have heard Brother Keith Moore say at least a gazillion times is go where you're sent, stay where you're stationed. I like thinking of that as a military, in a military framework, because we are soldiers in the army of God. Amen? And he also has said this. If you put in a transfer and your request comes back stamped denied, then trust God that he knows what he's doing and be faithful, serving him wholeheartedly with a humble and gentle attitude. My life has changed dramatically since I stopped resisting when I realized resistance is futile. And I surrendered to what God wanted for me for my life. You'd think I would have been smarter than to wait for 20 years to do that. But he was still faithful all the time because he knew, because he could see from above, from the beginning to the end, he knew that I'd get in line and he would have a place for us to serve and be about the father's business right up until the time when the trumpet blows. Amen. And then there'll be more stuff to do once we get there. But first a banquet. That's what I wanted to share with you today. I hope it blessed you. I hope if anything, if there's an area of your life where you just feel like you haven't surrendered, you know you need to, just remind yourself over and over and over again until it sticks that God can be trusted, that he loves you. He's deeply, desperately, passionately in love with you, and he only wants the best for you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad that you're so smart. And I'm so thankful that even when we are stubborn children, you still love us. You're still reaching out to us. You're still nudging us along and bringing us ever closer to you. Thank you that you never give up on us. That you are always for us. In every way. Thank you for your word, Father. Your word that brings life to us. That is life to us. Thank you for this time around your word. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.